Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Bonus Years Podcast, where we talk about how to find hope in the hard. I'm Brooke, and I'm your host. Let's get started. Well, for all of our friends who are listening today, welcome to the Bonus Years. Um, I'm Brooke, and I'm your host today as we talk to Denise Redeker, who is a transplant recipient. All right, Denise, we want to hear your story. Oh, gosh. Uh, I know. Like, I mean, not your whole life story. We could do that. But I'm thinking, like, you know, were you, were you sick before your diagnosis? Tell us kind of how it progressed. Well, I was probably sick all of my life or most of my life. I just didn't know it until I was 29. Um, I was always, as a kid, I was always the least athletic person. I got winded quickly. I just kind of attributed it to the fact that I was graceless. I still am. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, just not athletic. And, and back then when I was a kid, nobody screened you. Nobody even thought about screening you for heart disease. So, uh, so I never got screened. I never, you know, nothing ever happened towards that end, even though literally Every member on my father's side of the family, except for one cousin who somehow has escaped the genetic plague, has died or been diagnosed with a serious heart problem. I was never tested. It never was a never was a thought. Wow. Um, and if not for my father-in-law, who, when I delivered my son when I was 29 years old, walked into my hospital room while I was still hooked up to an EKG, and as the esteemed, wonderful doctor that he was, uh, looked up at my EKG and said, that's not right. And uh, called in a nurse and demanded the nurse in full, I'm the head of, I'm the head of liver disease at USC Medical Hospital Authority, said, you need to call a cardiologist in here right now. And if it weren't for that, I probably wouldn't be here. Oh my gosh. Because he is the one who noticed on a day where we were holding and cooing over a newborn baby boy, he was the one who noticed that there was something seriously wrong. Wow. In the moment, that probably felt like he was a party pooper, huh? (laughs) You know, I was so, I had had a labor and again, Thinking back, this is probably because of my heart problem. I had a three-day-long labor. I had Mm. just given birth to a healthy baby boy who was on the verge of not being healthy. And I am not sure I heard much of that conversation because I was, A, overjoyed at my baby, and B, exhausted. Um, It had been a long three days. So So, so if that happened on the day you gave birth, Mm-hmm. Um, when did that start to register in your brain? Like who had that follow-up conversation with you? I, I'm a really good patient. I'm a really good patient. So when the hospital cardiologist told me I need to, needed to follow up with a cardiologist and again, my father-in-law to the rescue, my father-in-law vetted all the cardiologists that were within a 30 mile driving distance of our home and picked one for me that was in our medical plan at the time. And, and I dutifully went to this doctor and we went through all the tests. I had you know, halter monitor. I had echoes. I had all the tests done and was diagnosed because that's when they caught it with postpartum cardiomyopathy. Again, thinking back, that's probably not it. And actually 
knowing what I know now, that probably wasn't the accurate diagnosis, but cardiomyopathy was for sure. And I'm a good patient. So they'd say, well, we're going to put you on a couple of medications. You take these at this time and we'll see you in six months and we'll reevaluate. And so I left the doctor's office, filled the prescriptions, took the pills and completely forgot about my heart problem. I just didn't even give it four seconds of extra thought because I had a baby and I don't like a job. About. <laughs> yeah. And I just, moms, we don't, women in general, moms in particular, I think our, our own like personal health is like dead last on the list. <laughs> there's, there's lots of other things to do. I had a couple of wake up calls along the way. Um, when I found out that I had to have an implanted pacemaker defibrillator implanted, mm-hmm. that was a wake up call. It was like, Oh, Oh, this is actually progressing and this is actually getting worse. Um, so we need to take this pro- proactive measure um, in order to be alive. And that's the way my cardiologist at the time put it to me. It's like, we're working to keep you alive. And that's that's a hard thing to hear is, you know, because you think you're doing fine. I thought I was doing fine. Yeah. And, and then having a doctor tell you, no, no, you're, you're not, you're not doing fine. So we had that. And then I went back to life and I felt pretty good for a while. And it really wasn't until December of 2017 that my cardiologist at the time sat me down and said, we've done everything we can for you, medically speaking, and you've got about a year left to live without a transplant. Wow. And then it was like, oh, this isn't going to happen to somebody else. This is actually going to happen to me. Yeah. And um, went right from there to a support group meeting because they asked me to. And at the support group meeting, it was largely a group of male older transplant recipients who were um, whose wives were doing nothing but complaining about how horrible their husbands were because of the prednisone. (laughs) And I remember walking out between hearing that I had a year left to live and, and literally it was the entire scope of the support group meeting was these women complaining about their Uh husbands and how horrible they were. And I thought, if this is what transplant life is like, I don't want this. I don't want this. And so I went home and planned my funeral. That was going to be my question was, would you change anything? And talk to my pastor. About your funeral. We're amazing (laughs) vocalists. And told them, and we cried about it together and said, this is what I want (laughs) you to say. All the details in between. And this is what I want you to say. And Well, you don't have to say what I want you to say. You can say whatever you want to say. (laughs) Um, But I knew, you know, I knew my husband and son wouldn't be up for it when the time came. So I wanted to have all the things in place. And I planned my funeral, which was a wonderful way to spend New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. (laughs) That sounds delightful. It was. It it was amazing, although Mm -hmm. cathartic in a lot of ways. And in fact, it was funny. I just listened to a podcast that I haven't quite finished yet. I'm going to finish it today. That is, um, I can't remember the author's name, but his whole premise is that you should write your eulogy and read it every day. And I thought, that kind of resonates with me, um, and I should I should read it more often um, because I did write I did write stuff down, and I haven't gone back to look at it yet, and it's prompting me to go back and look at it. 
Oh, a lot has changed since then. Yeah, a lot has changed. I would not change the pastor. I would not change the vocalists, but the stuff, I would change all the details in between. There's a lot to change. So it was two weeks after that that I got, uh, I had experienced a massive ventricular tachycardia attack that landed me in the emergency room and that landed me in the hospital um, and that landed me in an admission and a transfer to Stanford University where I was told I wouldn't be discharged until I got a new heart because I was just too fragile, too weak um, to send home. So I moved into the hospital not knowing if it was going to be a day, a week, a month, a year. Um, I was one of the lucky ones, though, because three weeks, almost to the day after I moved in, a surgeon walked into my hospital room and said, I think we have the perfect heart for you. And I was like, wait, what? Okay. And it was a high-risk heart, so we had to have a conversation surrounding that. Mm -hmm. Um, And... The next day, I was wheeled into the OR at 8.30 in the evening and wheeled out at 8.30 a.m. the next morning and had a whole lot of complications post-transplant, way more than I think I ever did pre-transplant. I had both types of organ rejection and an infection, had internal bleeding, so I had to have three open-heart surgeries in the span of a week. Almost died. The third one almost killed me. And I remember so much from that experience, including in the ICU when I was fighting to breathe um, and fighting to stay alive. And the man in the bed next to me was crashing Mm -hmm. and there was all this commotion. And my husband was so concerned. And again, praise God that it was before COVID because I can't imagine doing all of this by myself. But my husband leaned in and said, it's not you. Mm. And because he was so concerned that I would think that that was me because I was so close to that point myself at that, at that point. I had uh, massive doses of prednisone, <laughs> um, the drug that I was so afraid of because of the rejection. Um, I had massive doses of it. Um, luckily, I did not become a raging, angry person. <laughs> That was not my side effect. Prednisone has a uh, lovely array of side effects. And, yes, it does. <laughs> and and everyone gets some, but not everybody gets them all. So. <laughs> it's like a lottery where everyone loses. Some of us lose more than others. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's true. It's true. And um, so by uh, I did I got home around mid April of that year of 2018 and uh, came home with a wound vac because I still had an infection that I was dealing with. But once recovery started, I really started making some big forward strides. I got into cardiac rehab. I started to rebuild my body from the ground up because I lost so much muscle tone. I lost every ounce of muscle tone going through the procedure. And um, within a year of getting home, I uh, completed a 5 and a 10K and um, still trying to do a 5K every day. Still trying to do a 5K every day. Good for you. And and it's just been great. I mean, there are bumps in the road. There always are with transplant life. There's side effects to all the medications that you have to take. 
at very regimented times. I've learned from my own body that if I want to keep my stomach happy and not be nauseous all day long, I have to spread out my medications throughout the day way more than the average transplant patient does. Um, and so I take my meds seven different times during the day. Mm. Um, but my I, I'm not nauseous, so that's an easy trade-off for me. Right. Um, and... We've been able to travel a bit um, because of um, the the blessing that we were able to buy a little tiny RV and um, little twenty four foot RV and uh, and it gives us a bubble that we're safe to tra- travel in and um, so we go camping. In fact, we're going camping next weekend. That's amazing. So you asked me earlier how I've dealt with lockdown, and that's kind of how, is going going out into nature and being by myself and outside, or by myself, by myself, but, <laughs> you know, with my husband outside, um, you know, it makes me feel like I'm getting out and getting someplace different without having to be around a lot of people. Yeah. I miss a lot of people, but I do get to... I, um, you know, I never used to think so. I think I'm a little bit of a combination of two. I get peopled out at some point, but I miss my people after a while. Yeah. Wow. That's that's a lot of a lot of story, Denise. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and all of that has happened what in the last 4 years. The Heartfelt Bike and Block Party is a virtual cycling event that comes in three options, allowing people of different fitness levels to participate. You can join in from anywhere, whether on your Peloton, at the gym, or outdoors. Let's support our friends at the Heartfelt Help Foundation meet a financial need for those who need a life-saving organ transplant. You can sign up or donate at the link in our description. Now, I want to ask you about something you said right at the beginning. You said you're a good patient. I am a good patient. <laughs> what does that mean to you, to be a good patient? Um... To me, being a good patient, you know, it's funny. When I started this, I had one definition. Now I have a completely different one. I still Ooh. consider myself to be a good patient. Um, but I am not, I'm not the same good patient that I was at the beginning, if that makes any sense. How has it changed? Um, before, when I first started all this adventure, if a doctor told me to do something, I would say, okay, take this medication. Okay. Take your blood, whatever, you know, whatever, take this test. Okay. I'll do that. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And now I still say, I still am likely to say, okay, but I'm going to ask a whole lot of whys (laughs) and explain it to me and help me understand why. In the middle, I'm good before before we get to the compliant part. And as a transplant patient, you know that word compliant. Yes, I do. Is is it's kind of a scary word for a patient because if you are deemed non-compliant, you are not eligible. It's one of the things that can get you kicked off of a transplant list. And if you ever need a second transplant, and the likelihood that I will is high. And so being deemed non-compliant is not something you ever want to risk. However, in the yes and world that we all live in, 
um, where we can hold two things at the same time. I I don't want to be deemed non-compliant, but I also am not willing to just hand over my physical body to doctors without understanding completely what is going on, why they want to do what they want to do, and how they want to do what they want to do, and what they hope to accomplish with what they are going to do, what the side effects of that is going to be, and what we can do to minimize those side effects if indeed they happen. Um, So there's a whole lot of more education. There's a whole lot more questioning. Um, There's just a whole lot more involvement than there used to be. Yeah. I can say the same about my experience. Like I started out, well, the only option if you want to live is a transplant. Okay, let's do it. Um, And it was quick. And then afterwards I was like, I don't know anything about transplants. I don't know what the rest of my life is going to be like. Um, And so I was very compliant. I was 20 and I was used to being, you know, a people pleaser, a rule follower, all those things. Uh, I don't, I don't remember when the shift happened to, okay, wait, this is my body. (laughs) And I want to know why you're doing what you're doing. Is there another option? Um, So when, when I hear good patient, I think I automatically think like, oh, they're not advocating for themselves. So I wish you had new language, you know? Yeah. Um, and again, you know, I think, I think the transplant world is probably one of the few worlds where that word compliant carries so much weight in a negative and a positive way. Yeah. Can you kind of explain compliant in the transplant world to anybody who's not in that realm? Sure, I will do my best. I'll chime in. Chime in. When you are deemed um, sick enough to need a transplant, no matter the organ, in my understanding, no matter the organ, my personal history only has to do with heart, but, it, you know, I think it's I think it's for every organ. You have to meet a number of qualifications. You have to be sick enough to need one, healthy enough to survive the surgery. You have to have a care team surrounding you. You have to pass a psychosocial evaluation. Part of that psychosocial evaluation is to be deemed that you are a compliant patient. In their world, it typically just means that you're going to do what the doctors tell you to do because they're not going to invest, and from their perspective, They're not going to invest the time, the money, and the organ, that precious organ in you, if you are not going to take your meds. If you are not going to take those meds every 12 hours that keep you alive, if you are going to go do something post-transplant, whatever the choices that you're going to make are, they're not going to invest that in you unless they can deem you through that psychosocial eval to be compliant. However, I think we've all heard examples of people who question or who advocate and who are squeaky wheels, who are deemed because they're just being a pain in the butt to the doctors about it for their own benefit, that they are risking being deemed non-compliant. I know somebody particularly who has been advocating for something for herself for a while and got a letter 
from the team saying she was risking non-compliance. No way. Yeah. And so we all worry about that because there is a line and it's for you and me as a transplant patient, I think it's a really invisible line. I'm not sure that it's a super visible line for the medical team, for your transplant team. Um, So it's this invisible line that we're all chasing where we all want to bump up against it because we all want to be good advocates for our health. So we want to bump up against it, but we don't know where it is. And in defense of our amazing medical teams, because I have an amazing medical team. Yeah, me too. I don't think they know where it is either. Yeah, it's like trying to hit a moving target for us because right. they're just, they don't know either. Right, exactly. So so they don't know where the line is. We don't know where the line is, but everybody seems to know when you cross it. Yeah. And so, so there's this burden that at least I feel, I can only speak for myself, but when, when I start like hardcore advocating for myself for something that I feel is super important for me, there's always this thought in the back of my head, is this going to be where I bump too hard up against the compliance line? Yeah. And I, I think about that a lot because I do ask a lot of questions um, and I, I haven't had anyone like, I can tell that they're frustrated sometimes because they just wanted to do their rounds and I've like, I need someone to come back and have a conversation with me and I'm a slow, slower processor. So when I get news, I need to sit with it for a little bit without anyone in the room so that I can actually wrap my head around what I feel and what my questions are. Um, and I didn't know that about myself 16 years ago when I got my liver transplant. And so... I also think part of being non-compliant is how you advocate for yourself um, because it can easily be interpreted as like you're just being difficult or have an attitude problem. Um, and I just, I just said, you know what? We're going to lead with kindness. Like I can ask the questions I need to ask in a respectful, kind way. Um, I can remind them that I, we all have my best interest at heart, but it's my body. So I need to know what's going on with my body. My team has been like, if I, if I'm asking a lot of questions, I'll say, I know that I'm asking a lot of questions. I know that this is taking up time that you don't have because the bureaucracy that is our crappy healthcare system right now, um, means that everybody's understaffed Yep. and everybody in that office is overburdened. Yeah. Um, they're being pulled in 53 different directions. They have to chart things that shouldn't have to be charted. They should be spending time with patients and it should be, it just should be easier. And it's not because of so many layers of nonsense that have been built up in this country over a hundred years, probably. Um, which is again, another podcast for another day. <laughs> um, we'll have to do that. <laughs> Maybe we why could have are, a panel of people. Why, why our healthcare system is both wonderful and awful in this country. <laughs> yeah. And I, I can I can say some people from other countries would say the same about theirs. So I'm not sure that it's ever going to be anything but wonderful and awful. I think that's life. I think that's all. I, yeah. I think I life agree. is wonderful and awful at the I same agree. time. <laughs> I agree. Wow. Well, there's probably 20 more things I could talk to you about, so we'll just have to have you come back on. Um, but thank you for chatting with me today. Um, it was really good to hear your whole story. 
And I know that there's going to be somebody out there listening that's going to benefit from hearing what you said. And that's what we're all about at The Bonus Years. So thank you, Denise. Thank you. It's been super fun. Thank you for listening today. We're always so glad you're here. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a quick moment to subscribe, rate, and comment. Because we share good things with our friends, pass along this episode to someone you thought of today. As always, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Bonus Years and on our website, www.thebonusyearsblog.com. Thank you.